You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host, Hanoch Teller. As we described last time, the British War Cabinet had a decisive meeting at the end of October 1917, and now that Wilson had given his approval to the Declaration because of Brandeis's remarkable work, the Declaration was assured. The only opposition which remained was that of Lord Curzon. Needless to say, Curzon was Jewish, and he was the chairman of the Cabinet Committee on Middle East Acquisitions. Curzon thought that a Jewish national home idea was unrealistic, as there were half a million Arabs who will, quote, not be content to be expropriated for the Jewish immigrants or to act merely as hewers of wood or drawers of water for the latter, close quote. At the time of World War I, there were almost 100,000 Jews living in Palestine, and there were approximately 500,000 Arabs. Of these Arabs, 350,000 had migrated to Palestine only in the previous 30 years, mainly because of the economic benefits which accompanied the new Jewish development of the land. This pattern of Arab immigration to Palestine would be characteristic of an entire century of Jewish settlement in Palestine. As the Jews began to build Western-style agriculture, industrial society, the poor and the oppressed Arabs of the neighboring areas of the Ottoman Empire flocked to Palestine in numbers much greater than the Jewish immigrants to try and take benefit of what the Jews had brought to the area. As the chairman of the American Christian Palestine Committee said in 1953, the Arab population of Palestine was small, and it was limited until the Jewish settlement restored the barren lands and drew to it Arabs from neighboring countries. Close quote. Aside from the opposition of Lord Corzon, another opponent was an assimilated British Jew, Edwin Montagu, who was a member of the cabinet and a liberal politician. Montagu was also a cousin of Herbert Samuel. And Montagu advanced all the reasons usually associated with the objections of assimilated Jews to the adoption of pro-Jewish policies by their government. Basically, it's always this constant fear of being accused of having dual loyalty. And we know Jews always try to bend over backwards to show how non-Jewish they are and how much they favor a position which shows no prejudicial interest for a Jewish cause. When Brandeis, who we've been talking about, Brandeis named after Brandeis University, he was also named after the major street in Israel, in Jerusalem, called Rehov Brandeis. Brandeis was also the first Jewish justice in the United States. Will the audience please rise and join members of voicemail in singing the Brandeis alma mater. And when he was suggested to be appointed to the bench, the detractors pointed out the fact that he was a Zionist. 
and therefore he will be suspect to dual loyalties. Brandeis responded, I'll give you his quotation, then I'll translate it into simpler English. Brandeis responded, multiple loyalties do not necessarily imply mutually exclusive loyalties. A man can be loyal to his family, his city, his state, his country, and he'd have no fear that these loyalties will conflict. Or simpler, dual loyalties do not imply conflicting loyalties. You can be loyal to your city and at the same time be loyal to your state. You can be loyal to your state and at the same time be loyal to your country. You can be loyal to your country and at the same time be loyal to God. Dual loyalties do not imply conflicting loyalties. And there's yet another player in the achieving of the Declaration, and he's going to get plenty of attention in a future episode of Teller from Jerusalem, and that, that is Rabbi Abraham Yitzchak Cook, or better simply known as Rav Cook. In 1914, Rabbi Cook was invited to the Goodith Israel Convention in Europe, and he went there in the hope of convincing the leaders to take a more positive stance in regard to, Zionistic, to the Zionist movement. While he was there, World War I erupted, and he could not get back to Israel. From 1915 to 1918, he was appointed as the temporary head of the Machzike Das Congregation in London, and he tried to convince the Jews of London to take a more active role in Zionist ideology. Uh, he might not have been that successful then, but as a rule, I would say that, except for the extraordinary extremists in, among Anglo Jewry, as a rule, Anglo Jewry is very Zionistic, certainly as we speak. Ruf Cook campaigned against the Jewish parliamentarians who maintained that Judaism is a religion without nationalistic aspirations. It's always unusual how people who know nothing about Judaism are quick to assert their knowledge about Judaism. A half year before the Balfour Declaration, Rav Cook published a statement that was published and distributed throughout, the, throughout Jewish London. In this essay, Rav Cook made clear the central place Israel rose in Judaism, and he also appealed to the conscience of the Gentiles to enable the Jews to return to their homeland from which they had been banished. It was said that his essay and his activism was instrumental in the mind of the public and also in the chambers of parliament. It was clear to Rav Cook and to his son who succeeded him that he ended up being exiled from Israel for the very purpose that he should be there in the right place in the right time to exert an influence to enable the Balfour Declaration. The word cabinet convened and Lord Balfour rested his case on the propaganda value that the Declaration would have on American and on Russian Jewry. He also advanced the idea that was prevalent in America that Germany might try to preempt Britain by being the first with its own declaration of Jewish national home. German officials were contemplating making a pro-Zionistic statement, but they had feared defending their Ottoman ally. As the war cabinet deliberated their decision, Weizmann waited outside. Wilson's approval was decisive, and Curzon did not press his objection. And so now, as Weizmann is pacing back and forth outside, now, uh, this is just so reminiscent of the, the man whose wife is in the delivery room and he's pacing back and forth and, uh, you know, in the, in the wrinkled jacket and suit and he's putting, you know, one cigarette after another cigarette. And uh, I heard a story that there was a, and I can relate to this too, <laughs> there was a, uh, a man whose wife was in the labor room and she, every single painful contraction, she let out a krechs 
and every krechs that she gave, he gave two krechs, and he's pacing back and forth, and this labor was endless. It was an eternity plus. And she's krechsing, and she's giving out one kvetch after another kvetch, and every time she does it, he does it. Every time she suffers, he suffers. He's pacing back and forth and back and forth. There seems to be no end to this. And finally, finally, nurse comes out and, he's, and she says to him, congratulations, it was a girl. And he says, oh, thank God. At least she won't have to go through what I went through. Okay, so now we have the cabinet meeting. Is The deliberations are going on. The military cabinet, Weizmann's pacing outside. And uh, Sir Mark Sykes, who's considered the greatest expert on Turkey in the cabinet, comes out with the text of the Balfour Declaration, and he related to the very nervous man pacing outside, Dr. Weizmann, it's a boy. So after the Balfour Declaration, there's enthusiasm of American Jewry, which is totally manifest. There were large parades in New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, and other major cities. The Germans tried vainly to regain some lost ground. They got the Turks in December of 1917 to agree to remove some restrictions on Jewish immigration, provided that the Jews accepted Ottoman nationality. But the Germans could not shake the Balfour thunder. The Kaiser noted, remorsefully, we are trailing behind, as usual. The Germans in the early years of the war recognized the value of American Jewish community and its hatred of Russia. Germany stressed that it was friendly to the Jews. It had protected, it claimed, Jews in the territories occupied by their forces. It made repeated diplomatic interventions to Constantinople to protect the Jews in the old settlement from the persecution of the Ottoman military governor in Palestine, Jamal Pasha. Some believed that if not for the intervention of the Germans toward the end of 1917, the settlement in Israel might have not survived the war at all. Now, on to the actual Balfour Declaration. The letter is dated November 2nd, 1917, November 2nd, 1917, from the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild, a leader of the British Jewish community for transmission to the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Ireland. Why not give it to Israel? Because there was no Israel. He couldn't, they couldn't give it to a state which had not yet existed. This was going to enable the creation of the state, so they gave it to a representative, to uh, Lord Rothschild. And this is the text of the Balfour Declaration. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. And there it is. 107 words of pure, deliberate, total ambiguity. Now, Herzl must have viewed his life as a total failure. He pitched his plan for the Jews to the Ottomans, he pitched his plan to the Germans, and he pitched his plan to the British. And he struck out three times. Or struck out, yeah, I guess three times. And 13 years later, there was the Balfour Declaration, which would lead to the world recognition for a home for the Jews in Palestine. 
just 13 years later. The Balfour Declaration electrified the Jews all over the world. They had dreamed about a national homeland in Palestine, in Odessa. 200,000 Jews followed the motor car of Usishkin and his comrades, and the whole of Christian Odessa was astounded at the sight of the great Jewish procession, the likes of which no Russian city had ever, ever seen before. In the rabbinic world, there was division. There were mixed reactions to the Balfour Declaration. The Ger Rebbe, the Grand Rabbi of Ger and the Grand Rabbi of Satmer, felt that it was Masasatan. They felt that it was the work of the Satan. But the great sage, the Chafetz Chaim and the Or Sameach, felt that it was an arousal from above. It was decreed directly from heaven. Anglo jury was thrilled. Thrilled that the declaration expressed its gratitude. Heartened by this response and intent upon its duplication in other countries, the government, the British government, established a special Jewish section within the Department of Information, staffing it primarily with Zionists. The department's task was to prepare literature for distribution in Jewish communities throughout the world. Copies of the British statement were circulated by the millions, including leaflets dropped from the air over German and Austrian towns. When the news of the declaration reached the Russian reached Russia three weeks later, it evoked wild rejoicing. Huge, cheering crowds gathered outside the British consulates in the larger cities. Petitions and cables of gratitude flooded in on Balfour from Jewish communities as far removed as Shanghai, Alexandria, and Cape Town. Jewish folklorists have periodically conjectured that various nations might have their roots in the Ten Tribes. When a country has treated Jews well, for example, England after the 1917 issuance of the Balfour Declaration, some Jews have conjectured that the people are descended from the Ten Lost Tribes. And that was assumed right then and there when the Declaration was publicized. The day the Balfour Declaration was announced, Rabbi Rav Kook declared it a minor holiday, and he instructed for schnapps and cake to be brought to the synagogue, and together with their rabbi, they broke into dance. Rav Kook said that the Balfour Declaration was even better than that of Cyrus to go up and build the temple. With the Jewish homeland now on the horizon, Weizmann met with Emir Faisal, the leader of the Arab National Movement, the King of Iraq, in 1919. The two signed an agreement that the Arabs would work toward and encourage a homeland for the Jews in Palestine, and the Jews would work to assist the Arabs settle the land and develop their natural resources. Since the British refused to issue the Arabs immediate independence, Faisal reneged on the deal. Had that deal only been kept intact, it could have saved the region for so much spilled blood. Thank you for turning into this episode. We look forward to meeting again with our next episode, Please God. Kindly subscribe and make your friends and relatives aware. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit telefromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Tele products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, 
You can get Telefrom Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.